There is, uh, in the life of Abraham, now Abram, his name has not been changed, um, there is in the life of Abram a story that probably he wishes was not in there, but I'm awfully glad it is. It is possible for the child of God to go back into the world, but if they're a true believer, they will never be happy there again. Uh, it is possible for a believer to live outside of victory, and they're probably the most miserable creature on the face of the earth, more miserable than a lost man. If a professed believer can go back into Egypt, back into the world, and enjoy it, it's highly questionable whether life was ever there. Because the experience of being born again is such a radical altering of the disposition way down deep. It's such a, such a radical altering that the life can never be the same again. And a believer may go back down into Egypt, but they will never be happy and trouble will come. Another indication that a person is not saved is that they can go down into Egypt and there's no chastisement from the Lord. There's no punishment. There's no whipping, if you will, from a father who cares so much for his child that he will not let him destroy himself in Egypt, even to the point of God taking his believers home to heaven out of Egypt itself. So it's not a good sign when a, when a professed Christian, and we're not wet behind the ears. We understand there's an awful lot of people, especially in the South, who name the name of Christ, who have nothing to do, who a moment after the rapture will, will, will get it that they weren't part of it. And so we have in the life of Abram a test of his faith. And so go with me to chapter 12 of Genesis and let's look and see how Abram responds to this testing of faith. Now, we're going to go there, and you're going to put your finger. Uh, if you're on an iPad, you can just kind of book note it, and we're going to go somewhere else before we actually read the story. Uh, two different places, locations, if you will. So put your finger in Genesis 12. We'll flip right back there and go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Chap chapter 2 of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. Give you a moment to turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. In a moment, we'll go to Isaiah 31. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, is part of an early Christian praise chorus. Long before there were hymns, there were praise choruses. Kind of interesting, those who didn't like the praise choruses when they came around. They actually were older than the hymns that were written in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. So this was a part of the church's early worship music. Uh, and in fact, verse 11 through 13 is a fateful saying, a saying of trustworthy note. And this was a chorus that they sang. I'll read the whole thing. If we have died with him, which we have, in Christ, we shall live with him. Isn't that beautiful? If we have been co-crucified with Christ, our life is with him. We live with him. Notice, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
the proof that we have died and are living again is that we have endured and will endure until the end. Uh, the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints doesn't say that a Christian is saved at the end because they persevered. It says that perseverance is a sign that a person truly is saved. That's, that's the teaching of that, which I heartily agree. Those who are truly saved will persevere. And that's what that verse means, I believe, if we endure. If we deny Him, there's the promise. If there are times we go into Egypt, notice, He will also deny us. Whoa, whoa. Deny us of what is the question? Well, the promise we'll find to Abram is up in Canaan, not down in Egypt. The protection and blessing is in Canaan, not in Egypt. The discipline and chastisement of the Lord and heartache is down in Egypt. Do you see that? So it isn't that he's going to deny us in terms of, I don't know you. He's going to deal with us differently down there so that we don't stay down there and come home. Okay. But look at the last promise in verse 13. If we are faithless, see this refutes the idea that he will deny us in verse 12. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If our faith falters and we go down into Egypt, notice it says he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Because when a Christian goes down into Egypt and back into the world, the reason they're miserable is because they take him with them. And he will not deny his own life within you. See, he can't. He lives in you and will never leave you. Therefore, a trip into the world, into our own mentality. And by the way, you can go to Egypt in the midst of being a good church-attending Christian. You can sit right in a church and be in Egypt. Now, I, do, I will go to the point where if you are not faithfully in church, you're probably in Egypt. I know that's a little bit of a strong point that some would disagree with, but I'm a real church-oriented guy, and I just see enough in the New Testament to see that, that this is the bride of Christ. And although you may go for a while without a church, you will be seeking one, wanting to be one, and you will be at home with one. So I know it's a bit strong for some of you, but I truly believe that if someone is really happy without attending a church for months and years, I am extremely doubtful whether his life is in that life. No one can say, I can't say, you can't say, but the evidence certainly points to the idea that you, it's, you know what I mean, I love being around God's people and hear God's word, and you do too. So, uh, if we are faithless, he is, remains faithful to us. Don't you love that? There's a warning in Isaiah 31. Take a look at Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31. This would be a warning for Egypt, and Egypt is a picture of the world. Um, they were in bondage in Egypt. They got led across the Red Sea out of Egypt, which is a picture of salvation, led through the wilderness with his presence into Canaan land, which is the victorious Christian life. And so all these are very beautiful pictures of elements of the Christian life, but Egypt is always the world. It's the world, and it's pull. And I'm not talking about just like the trees and planet. I'm talking about the system that Satan has set up 
to entrap people, to send them to hell, and to snare Christians into walking away from the Lord. Okay, so look at chapter 31. Woe, woe, woe to those... See, there's no new words in the vocabulary that come along. They're all, you know, young people. Whoa! It's, it's all there, okay? It's nothing new under the sun. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help that rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen, because they are very strong. What's the problem with all that? But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Proud of our strong military. And I think we ought to have a strong military. But David got an awful lot of trouble for counting the military. You know that? Because for David, it was, uh, uh, look how strong we are militarily. Well, the strength of a nation is its trust in God, not in its tanks and planes. All those things can quickly turn on you, can they not? And so, uh, anyway, there's a warning. Don't do that. Don't go down in Egypt. All right, with all that forethought, look at chapter 12 of Genesis. Now, remember where, Genesis, remember where Abram is. He had left Ur the Chaldeans. He had come up. Had a little stopover in Haran that he probably shouldn't have had, a little delay. His father, his father finally died, finally died. He moves on, travels three or 400 miles across the desert and makes it into Canaan. This is the promised land. He pulls up at Bethel, worships in an altar, starts moving south with his family. All the provisions that God has promised are where? In Canaan. All right, test comes. Easy to trust God on a 400-mile trip across the desert. Maybe sometimes a little harder to trust Him with the everyday bread and sandwich in your mouth. So look at, look at, look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. The rain didn't come for a couple of years. It takes a while to get a famine going. So this didn't happen overnight. So Abram went down to eat. What? What? No consulting of the Lord. No prayer given. Really, prayer wasn't necessary for Abram at this point. Because when you have a clear word from Scripture, you don't need to pray about it. God said, go to Canaan. That's where I'm going to have you inherit the land. So many times we, we Christians pray over things that are, that are biblically prohibited to us. We pray over things that are, we have a very, when you have a clear scripture, it's just obedience to that scripture. That's all that matters. So the circumstances changed. So because the circumstances changed, God changed. Right? No. So take a look at it. Look at verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Why? Because the famine was severe in the land. Now, what did Abram have his eyes on at this very time? Not only himself, he was thinking of his family, but ultimately himself, Larry, you're, you're correct, but his family. And what did he have his eyes, that he took his eyes off the Lord and put them on what? The, well, the famine, the circumstances, and then ultimately what he thought were greener pastures down the way. 
You know, biblical commands are really good until they interrupt with, with something you really want in life or something you're not getting in life. See? Uh, how many times have we thought how unfair it is of the Lord to hold back this or that from us? See, we begin to rationalize in our minds what's best for us. Now, once you start down that slippery slope, it only gets worse down the way. So ultimately, the greatest place to make the decision at the very starting point is to go, you know, there's a famine in the land, but God told me that Canaan's where I'm supposed to be. So even in the famine, God will provide for me. Amen? Easy to say until you're in the famine, until it dries up and you don't know where the next meal comes from or there's something you really want and you're not getting it or there's a situation you don't like and you know a way out, but you know, okay? It's, it's, can I trust God when there's a famine? When I, can I trust Him when I get bad news, when the circumstances aren't what I wanted? You see, hard. Well, let's, let's read on. By the, way, it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't say anything about Abram getting harassed by Sarah. Okay, big guy, where's my meal coming from? Well, you know how your wives can be sometimes. <laughs> you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit manipulative maybe, a little bit saying this or that, putting pressure on a guy. You know, what about, I remember when Kira and I were first married, I was going from job to job trying to find something that I wanted to do. And I, worked, I went into Albertsons for a stock job, you know, and, and so I came out uh, from the store and Karen says, well, how much are they going to pay you? And I, I, I told her how much per hour and she calculated per hour, you know, and she added up and she started laughing over on the other side of the car. Didn't do a lot for my self-esteem at that point. I didn't like it anyway. I quit after one night. But I didn't really build, build up my self-esteem a lot when I started laughing about what you're going to make. So you know, you know how you ladies can do so. I understand. So there's no pressure. But maybe there was pressure from Sarah. It doesn't say that. Maybe Lot, his nephew started harassing him a little bit. Maybe the servants are, Maybe he got pressure from his family. But when God records it in Scripture, it's simply Abraham, Abram did this because he is responsible for the decisions of his family. God doesn't include a nagging wife that she might have been. A harassing lot. It's Abram. And ultimately it doesn't, if you are a leader that lets everybody around you influence what you do or say or the directions you go simply by prodding you, you are what we used to call at the post office a one-celled amoeba supervisor who simply moves by the, uh, the poke of stimuli. I'm sorry, that was cruel to my old friends who were supervisors. But it seemed like whatever little poke, you know, you poke a little one-celled amoeba and it moves. Well, God holds Abram responsible for this trip. And so there it is. All right, so look, I love the way this story unfolds. Now, when he was about to enter Egypt, I'm going to do a little paraphrase here. Uh, he knew the Egyptians were lustful, lustful, a lustful. Various. Polygamy was down in there. Immorality was immense. Uh, this particular strain of Egyptians, which were different than the Egyptians we have today. The Egyptians ha we have today are a cross between Alexander the Great's Greeks that came down and mixed with that, kind, mixed with that group. These ancient uh, 
Egyptians were obsessed with sex, obsessed with immorality. And Abram knew that going down. So going down into the land, he said to Sarah, his wife, something every wife wants to hear, I know that you are a beautiful woman. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. There's not a woman sitting here tonight wouldn't like that to roll off the lips of her husband. I ought to say that on a regular basis. I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. By the way, she was probably probably 60 or 70. She lived to be 127. This is probably halfway through her life. So in today's vernacular, she was probably in her late 30s, early 40s. Nice. Uh, We live in a culture where youth, is prized for beauty. This particular culture didn't prize youth for beauty. Apparently it prized mid-age for beauty. That was nice, wasn't it? In fact, I believe that you ladies, as you get older, are like fine wine. You just get more beautiful as the years go on. I mean that with all of my heart. Now, Brittany, you've got a few more years. You've got to get some years on. You're beautiful now. Okay, you're beautiful now, but just wait for 10, 15, 20, wait 40 years from now. You're going to be as beautiful as your mom. That wasn't supposed to be funny. (laughs) This was midlife for Sarah. And he looked at her and said, look, you're a knockout. And I'm going to run into trouble down here. And again, you start down that slippery slope, and all of a sudden you begin to rationalize and compromise And now you've got to live life on your own terms, figuring this stuff out rather than God protecting Sarah. So look what happens. I know you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, ah, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, and probably would have, and they will let you live. Now that sounds selfish, doesn't it? But really, it was kind of looking out for Sarah too, because his plan seemed to... We'll see how the plan unfolds. But he was kind of thinking like for Sarah to, because if they did kill him, they just grab Sarah. So it was partly he was watching his own neck, but I think he was kind of thinking about Sarah too because this is, this is the plan. Say you are my sister. Well, Sarah was Abram's half-sister. So it wasn't really like a bull-faced lie. It was a half-truth. But a half-truth is a whole lie. But when you begin to compromise, you can begin to half lie, and it sounds like a pretty good deal. It's a half-sister. Say, say, say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Well, that does sound selfish. Let's just say it. That does sound selfish. But you know, I've been a good husband to you. I've taken care of you. Time for you to take care of me. Now, I think along with Abram's thinking, and the reason Sarah went along with this is this. If, Sarah, if Abram's alive, and they think that I'm his sister, maybe they'll leave me alone. Or at least Abram, a brother, will have some kind of say to protect me. He can't have any say when he's dead, right? So the plan kind of looks like a good plan. Well, let's see how the plan unfolds. Again, it's all human rationing. It's all human reasoning and, and figuring life out and... And how many of y'all have ever done that? Not specifically that, but 
begin to manipulate the circumstances to your benefit. All right, take a look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. There's an old Jewish legend that goes like this. Now again, this is a Jewish legend, so take it for what it's worth. The legend goes that when Abram was entering the land of Egypt, he had Sarah in a casket trying to hide her, or a box. They asked him at the border, what is it? He said, it's barley. They said, we know it's not barley. He said, "Uh, it's wheat. I'll pay you the custom for wheat. They said, ah, this isn't wheat. And they went through six or seven things. Finally, they said, it's, he said, it's gold. Or, and they said, no, it's not gold. Finally, the suspicion got so the best of them that they opened the box, the Egyptian customs, opened the box, and the beauty of Sarah lit up the land of Egypt. Jewish legend. Anyway. Doubt it actually happened, but the Jews love stories like that. Um, Along with the same Jewish legends that also said that when Sarah walked in Egypt, she made all the Egyptian women look like monkeys. (laughs) Which I'm sure the Egyptian women didn't appreciate. But anyway, it's... uh, Anyway, so much... But anyway, it's just interesting stuff. So uh, if you'll go down to verse 15. So she's very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, this is the very first time the word praise is in the Bible. Do you know that? They praised her. Allah. They praised her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. He had sheep. Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. Remember the female servants part. Remember that. Yeah, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Female donkeys and camels and things seem to be working out real well with Abram's plan. Now the guys who preach prosperity in our day would have told Abram to head right down where the pastures are green. God doesn't want you to suffer. He wants you to prosper. And if it's prospering in Egypt, head on down there. God loves you in ignoring the biblical command to stay in Canaan. The guys in prosperity would have encouraged this move. At this point, the guys who encouraged prosperity in the gospel would have said, see how the Lord is blessing you, Abram? You were smart, weren't you? You were wise to do what you were. And sometimes when we as Christians go back down into the world, we make decisions, it looks for a while as if it's working out. We're getting what we want. We're no longer alone or dry or empty of wallet or it looks like it's working out. But God is faithful when we are faithless because look what happens to Pharaoh. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. This wasn't the last time Pharaoh will see some plagues come. Uh, hundreds of years after this, he'll see the frogs and all that come. But all of a sudden, the very first time that he gets plagued is because a Christian has come down, a believer has come down into his land and lied to him. This is a real low spot, and this is why Abram wouldn't want this written, but it was. Because a Christian can go so far into the world as to cause trouble 
with lost people. And lost people are more sensitive to what has happened than the very Christian themselves sometimes. And it says in verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, what is this? What is this that you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, why, why, why? He's rebuking him. Why did you say, she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. She was in a dangerous situation and Abram put her there. Because through Sarah, the messianic line would come. And here there's a possibility of a heathen Egyptian king defiling her, even impregnating her. See the danger of that? But God is faithful not to allow that to happen. And he just doesn't say what kind of plagues. It just says, look, Pharaoh's house turned upside down. You ever had those kind of things where you feel like you're being plagued and you go, well, what's going on? What did I do? And that's what happened. And he got revelation somehow that, that this Sarah was Abram's wife. And he calls him in. And look what he says to him. Now in verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? Now then, here's your wife. <laughs> Take her. Go. Wow. That's a pretty low place for a believer in Christ, but it happens. I've found that the Lord can use just about anybody to rebuke us. Can he not? Can he not? The Lord can use, do you know I was won to Christ by a lost person who rebuked me for my drunkenness? Do you know that? The guy, well, Curtis didn't really lead me to the Lord, but he was the very first guy who ever rebuked me before I came to Christ. At that time, I was going to the Bible study on a ship, but I wasn't a believer. I had not come to Christ yet. But I went to the Bible study, and everybody knew that I showed up for that weekly Bible study on the ship. Well, I came back pretty soused one night from, uh, from shore leave, staggering down the stairs, and, and I got into those little... I mean, when you're drunk and you're trying to manipulate, you're trying to walk down these, these very steep, narrow stairs, and these these, what do they call those holes that, that has the lid over top of them, portholes. I mean, I, I hit that pork, pork hole. I hit that porthole and slid on my left thigh, hit that thing hard, man. And I, my feet hit that ladder, and I boom, 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 boom. And I laid back down at the, at the bottom of the thing, and Curtis walked by me, a reprobate like I was, and he walked by, and he says, you know what, you, you're not a Christian. He said, look at you. You're drunk. You go to that Christian Bible study, but you're not one of them. I know you're not. And I'm like, here I am! <laughs> but you know, the Spirit of God used that statement by Curtis to begin to tell me I wasn't one of them. I had the biggest bruise. I had a bruise from here to here. And I think the Lord used that bruise. And look at that. That's, that's, that's what you are right there. But I was a lost guy. God can use a talking donkey to rebuke a prophet. He can use anybody. And here he uses a pagan king to say, here's your wife, down the road, please. Enough of you Jews, just take off. I'm, I'm, I don't want to see you again. Look at, how the, look at how the story ends. Then Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, notice, and all that he had. I find this pagan is more righteous than Abram at this point. 
He didn't pull back all the servants and donkeys and all the slaves. I wish he had, but he didn't. He said, take them with you. Take them with you. All that I've given you, take them with you. Because he feared the plagues of God more than Abram feared the Lord at this point. This is a story of ultimate grace. If God was dealing with Moses according to the law later on, he was dealing with Abram in grace at this point. How gracious the Lord sent him away. And by the way, the female servant, one of them was by the name of Hagar. She'll show up later in the, in the, in the story. It won't go well. So when you go down to Egypt, you go down into the world, it's always moving away from God's promises. Circumstances can surround you that create a famine in your life, and rather than trusting the God who will take you to heaven, Oh, yeah, he'll take me to heaven. I'm just really not quite sure how he's going to feed us tomorrow night. It's always in the little things that come the trial of faith. Always the small things. Can I trust God with this relationship? Can I trust God with this illness, this disease? Can I trust God? Am I willing to lose it all for him so that I stay with him and stay in the place of Canaan land sojourning in the land even if you fail the test if his life is in you he will not deny